0: Before I dive in, a couple things, two things. One, I wanted to let everyone know, and most of you know the Davids, but uh, Joni, David is about to have, could be right now having, but uh, their second child. So Michael texted me this morning and and wanted to let me know so we could be praying. And they had a false alarm this weekend, and we knew about that, and, and Robin... Yeah, I went over there and, and slept over there while they, but they came back. They didn't get any sleep. They went. They were in the hospital the whole night, and then it was a false alarm, so we were praying for them that morning when Kinsey woke up, uh, but I think hopefully this is a real thing, and so pray for them, and that's a cause for rejoicing, but do keep them in your prayers even as I, as I preach. Um, second thing I just wanted to mention briefly, and that Nathaniel, you know, told you, and you've probably gotten the stuff from the podium over there by the door, but uh, the music stand, but... Yeah, we have a we have lots of literature in the back that Paul's worked hard to get uh, get printed for us, and we'll have literature weekly with the yearly calendar on it with the week's events. So the anchor time will be shorter. Uh, but so do do uh, pamphlet up lit up back there once you once the the gathering finishes. And we've also got if you're reading through the Bible, um, read Scripture is the name of the app. Read Scripture. So if you don't have that app and you want to read through the Bible with us this year, download that and uh, Every week we'll have what we're reading for the week on the, uh, the week's events pamphlet. And then we also, and this is really what I, what I wanted to say, we also, so that will get us through the Bible together in a year, which will be hopefully something we just do year to year as a basic rhythm as a church to get to know God through his word. Uh, few things have helped my growth in Christ more than reading, not just reading the Bible and praying daily with, and spending that time with God, but actually reading through the Bible yearly, it just gives you, in addition to whatever other Bible studies you're doing or whatever else, whatever you're teaching, if you're a teacher or if you're taking a segment and going down deep, just reading through and getting this, the arc of the salvation, uh, the salvation arc of, of the narrative history of the Bible is so, so important. So, but in addition to that, we want you guys to have, to get handles on what that biblical theology and what that uh, narrative how, how, how it fits together, what it means, what it means for your life, to have theological categories for it. So we will be starting equipping classes, God willing, this, this year, maybe in the fall, and that'll help. But also, um, we're going to start going through yearly, uh, just a catechism. It's called the New City Catechism. It's, they've taken the, the Gospel Coalition, Keller and others, have taken um, the Reformed Confessions and Creeds of old, and they've condensed them, clarified them, put them in modern language, for children and for adults, and they're in 52 question and answers instead of 120, which is, I think, what the Westminster is, um, and so they're online, but we've also, we'll have them on the bulletin every week for you as a resource, so we have the adult version on the bulletin, and then the kids will be learning, if you have children um, in Sojourn Kids, they'll be learning every week one of the 52, so we'll all get through them together, you'll, you'll be learning the same thing, and so it'll, you can take that home and talk, talk about that question and answer that week with your children. So we really value family worship, and that's just, that's another expression of, of our value of that, and we want to, we're looking forward to seeing what fruit that produces. So anyway, that's that, that's the New City Catechism, uh, question and answer one this week. Okay, I think that's it. So the 18th century French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, you've either heard of him or studied him probably, but he said, uh, shape is power, shape is power. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant by that is, among other things, that outward form, beauty, what appeals to us initially through our senses, um, has the advantage in this world big time. Big time. Whether it's good looks, a big bank account, a big house, power, whatever it is, um, that is the way of the world, and that's the way things operate. And shape is power. Shape is power. Um, That's the way everything operates, or almost everything. This narrative actually blows that apart. This narrative shows us uh, a great shape in the form of Goliath and shows us the world system and what the world values in Goliath and then decimates that um, in the way that God loves to do, through weakness, okay, in a, in a way that's, that's, a, that's a surprise. And that's God's economy. That's the way that he likes to work his victory and work his salvation is through weakness. And so we're going to talk about that, you know, we need to learn this lesson, the lesson of First Samuel 17 of David and Goliath, probably more than any people in history, because more than any people in history, we are driven by, we are driven by shape. We are driven by what our eyes see because of the media. We're, we are driven to glitz and gloss and ostentation and obvious power. That's what drives our world and our culture because there's so much surface and so much image you know, and I'm not even gonna get into Facebook, but that sort of thing, projecting. I'm not saying Facebook's evil, forget it. I mean, I'm not, don't, don't, we're not gonna go there. Um, but that's what our world, that more and more and more, probably more than, I mean, it's probably a safe argument to say more than any people in, in the history of the world, we are drawn to shape as power, to seeing and then believing what we see, and to quaking with fear because of what we see and letting that drive us. And so this, this breaks that apart and gives us another way. Um, I want to give you a little context before giving you our three points, which you will definitely remember, even if you don't remember the content. um, Pretty simple. But in verse 4 of this chapter we have, we're told Goliath is a champion. He's a champion of the Philistines. He's their man. He's been a warrior from his youth. David is but a youth, but this dude is a professional killer who has been training since he was a youth and is now older and probably in the prime of his strength. And literally, that word champion in verse 4 in the Hebrew is the, word, is the phrase, the man between. That's literally what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say champion, that's a good translation because if we read the man between, we're like, what the heck? But literally, the Hebrew says, he is the man between. And what does that mean? Well, it means that he is the representative. He comes between the two armies that are lining up and says, I will represent, I'll come between and I'll fight for my people, and then you need to bring someone to the table to fight for your people. So you have two men between two armies. Here's the key representing, representing these two peoples. And, you know, if you are still having a hard time sort of visualizing this, uh, if you've seen the movie Troy with, oh my gosh, Brad Pitt, um, although he's not really a heartthrob anymore. He's kind of older and, yeah, he's got gray hair, but he used to be. Um, He plays Achilles, Achilles! And I think they're fighting the... uh, the Thessalonians, I believe, but either way, they're li- two armies lined up in battle, and Achilles is called for because the Thessalonians, the armies are lined up, and the t- thousands of people are about to engage in battle and kill each other off. And the kings agree, "Hey, I've got a warrior; you get your best warrior. We'll put them together and fight." And and the king agrees, and say, so, "I think the king of the uh, the Greeks is it." And so, yes, the Greeks. It's and so. Um, and so the king of the Thessalonians is smirking because he knows who he has that's about to come out. And it's this huge Goliath-like giant. I mean, he's massive, like at least a good seven and a half feet tall, just mu- muscled up and a big ring in his nose. And the whole Greek army just starts quaking. Um, and so Achilles is called out in the, the ranks. He's, he's like in the back asleep in a tent. And so they call him. They send a boy for him, and they call him. And the whole ranks of the Greek army divide. So he, he rides through on his horse, and he goes... And he grabs his shield and he just starts charging this Thessalonian. Thessalonian throws a couple spears at him, gets rid of his shield, keeps charging, and just jumps up and plunges his knife right into the trapezius muscle of the, in the air, you know, just to get up to his, it's an awesome scene. It's an awesome scene. Uh, but that's exactly what we have here. And it's, the thing is, is it's, it's an economical strategy, okay? It was, a very common, it was a very common way of fighting in the ancient Near East. It's an economical strategy because only instead of having hundreds of men die or thousands of men, you just have one man die. And it's smart if you have the professional killer, if you have the beast, the giant. And the Philistines did. And so rather than, I mean, a giant's effectiveness is greatly diminished when you have 10, 2,000 people against 2,000 people. But if it's one-on-one and he's your dude, and if he wins, you win, you're good. So that's what we have here. Uh, Three points, Goliath, David, Jesus, stay with me, just kidding, Goliath, David, and Jesus, okay, so we're going to start out with Goliath, look at these characters, now this description is very, so this ties into my illustration, it's very Homeric, it's extremely, if you've read Homer, if you've read the Iliad, the Odyssey, or any of Homer's works, it's extremely Homeric, a lot of detail about the character itself, but it's not typically Hebrew at all. Uh, Hebrew narrative is extremely spare. There's great economy in Hebrew narrative. And so when it gives you a physical description of any kind, it's not extraneous. It's for plot purposes, okay? And so in this, we get four full verses in almost egregious, overloaded detail of what Goliath is wearing and what he looks like. And so that's for a reason. We're being set up. Um, He has 125 pounds of armor on on him. That's like Robin... Uh, I think she's a little less. Sorry, not to throw your weight out, but that's about like my wife. <laughs> that's about like my wife plus some. Okay, uh, on your back, fighting. Okay, fighting in full combat. He he has greaves on, which are shin guards. He's got um, a helmet. He has a spear that's as thick. Have you ever seen a weaver? If you've been to I don't know India, or we saw one in Israel. You know the weaver's beam is like I couldn't even put my hand around it. That's the that's the the girth of his spear, uh, and then you it, at the tip of his spear, his spear head, we're told, is 15 pounds. I mean, 15 pound dumbbell, that's on the end of your spear and you're gonna throw that, you know, 75 yards. This guy is a monster. And he doesn't even carry his own shield. He has a shield bear that does that for him. And so, nobody's as good as the classic scholar out of Berkeley, Robert Alter. He's a Jew um, and he reads Hebrew beautifully and comments on it beautifully. He says this, I couldn't resist. Full scale descriptions almost never occur in the Hebrew Bible. Goliath himself being one of the few marginal exceptions. In his case, we get four verses, verses four through seven, at the beginning of the episode, cataloging his armor, his weapons, and the exact measure and weight of the man and his implements. The thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action as a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. In this hulking monument to, here's the phrase I love, to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. You can see it. All the power that's there is on display for even a child to see. It is marked uh, to be felled. So this obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power, it is marked to be felled by a clever shepherd boy with a slingshot. Eugene Peterson writes, quote, Goliath was the pole star around which everyone took his bearings. Goliath is what the world worships, okay? He is measurable, he is ostentatious, he is obviously impressive. The, the, he is an example of our little G gods, okay? What our eyes see, what we bow down to, what we fear, and therefore what we love, and what we are often beholden to. And uh, you know this, this tendency to hook into what our eyes see and to fear and to love those things it, 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 it's in all of us and it's in all of us and it goes deep because it goes all the way back to Eden. How did Eve, how was she deceived into sinning and then handing the, the fruit to her husband who, who also sinned and was responsible for that whole thing before God because he's the federal head. He's the head of that family and he, he was just sitting there silent. How did she fall? What does verse six of Genesis three say? It says that she saw the fruit, that it was good and beautiful and, she took it, therefore, and she ate it. And that poison and that tendency has been deep within us, resident, a resident evil in us ever since. It's the way, we're, it's the way that we're born into, and, and Christ came to actually have us to be born into a new way, which we will get to. But this trust in giants runs deep. I trust and crave and work to acquire what I can see, taste, touch, measure. Why? Because of the fall and we have been falling ever since. So it goes deep. And finally, with the Goliath point, um, a a couple times at least in verse 11 and verse 24, it's mentioned that the people's response, Israel's response, okay, God's people to Goliath is what? Not, let's kick his, you know, let's kick his butt. Let's go, send somebody out there. I'll go, you know, he's defying God. No, it's fear and dismay, verses 11 and 24. Israel is more than scared, though. So we're told that, that she fears greatly and she's greatly dismayed but it's more, than, it's more than just fright. The first occurrence of this phrase occurs in Deuteronomy 1, 21. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the end of the law, the end of the Torah, the first section of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it's Moses talking to Israel, a poised to take the promised land that God has promised to them. Poised to take it. Moses won't go in. He says, God says to you, do not fear or be dismayed. Why? Because you're gonna go in there and what your eyes see are gonna provoke you to fear because there are giants in the land. But what? God has promised you this land. He has been faithful. Remember and trust in his word instead of what your eyes see. Okay, that's what this phrase conveys to us in the Hebrew Bible. The second occurrence of this phrase is at the end of Deuteronomy. So it bookends the end of the law. It's in Deuteronomy 31.8. It's a similar reminder to uh, at the end of the Torah, okay? It's the same, same exact thing, basically. And the third occurrence is in, at the beginning of the next book, Joshua, which is the beginning of the next section of the Hebrew Bible. It's at the seams, at the intersections of the Hebrew Bible, and it says, God says to Joshua, don't fear or be dismayed, but what? Meditate on my word day and night, and you will have great success in whatever you do. So don't, don't, you're gonna have lots of reasons to fear in this life as you're fighting for what I've already given you. Trust, remember what I've done, trust in my word, and move ahead in that rather than being driven by what your eyes see, okay? So when we get here, if we've looked at that, and we get here in 1 Samuel 17 with Israel facing Goliath, um, the first time we see this phrase twice here in this book, it's the first time we see it uh, applied to Israel. Like Israel's actually the one fearing and dismaying, because before it's been don't fear and dismay. But now Israel, and then it's been used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible to say, um, the enemies of Israel will be in fear and dismay because of what i 'm going to do to them. But as this is the first time in the Bible that it 's applied to Israel, this is actually what they 're doing. So what does that mean that they 're doing? they 're not just fearing Goliath, they are distrusting. they're distrusting God and they 're forgetting His past faithfulness, and they are distrusting God and His word, and they 're disobeying Him by taking their eyes off Him and looking at what 's right in front of them. it 's so easy to do. Have you seen this guy? Verse 25? He is a monster. And you know, Saul joins them, verse 25. He joins with them, it says, in being full of fear. And he should be the one, what was Saul? He was, a, he was the first king of Israel, a head taller. He was the William Wallace. He was the brave heart of Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. And he was their king. And it was on him to go and to fight this man who was defying not only Israel, but Israel's God, the true God. And yet he is just as afraid as the rest of them. And so, what does this set set the stage for? Of course, this beautiful narrative. It sets the stage for David. Um, What are some examples before we move on to David? What are some examples in my own life of the giants that I fear? Uh, When our bank account gets low, which happens (laughs) more than it needs to, I look at the numbers that are left, the very small numbers, and I let my imagination run wild with uh, what might happen. Are we going to have to yank our kids out of school? Are we going to have to sell the house? Are we going to have to keep having no bushes? Um, which was nice during this freeze, by the way. I almost took a picture and sent it out on, you know, the World Wide Web, just like, hey, it is sometimes nice not having bushes because when it freezes, hey, no bushes to cover. Um, (laughs) Maybe we'll just keep it that way. Um, So looking at what's right in front of me, at these numbers, and really being filled with anxiety and fear and running through all the scenario, rather than remembering God's faithfulness in the past, He has provided for us so much in so many ways, but even monetarily in response to prayer not in response to prayer to get us through what he's called us to. We've never been in debt. Even going and doing an advanced degree in Edinburgh for four years, some of you that are sitting here supported us. Like we came out in the black. We were never in the red. No student debt. We've never been in debt. You know, God in his word, he's faithful. He's what matters anyway, even if we are in debt. None of that. Just looking at the numbers, filled with fear, running through scenarios, you know, Guilty. Um, and his, what is his, instead of what, looking at his word too which tells us don't be anxious, why? Because it doesn't, not only does it not help it's not gonna help the situation, it makes it worse like you can't add an inch to yourself being anxious about how short you are Jesus says, and it, and it makes things worse because it takes your eyes off God so that's just one example of what I do let me ask you, what, what fills you with fear and dismay? it may help to ask, what do you love? Because um, the answer is the same to both questions. What you love with, with, a, with an undying love, as it were, is what you're going to fear and what's gonna control you. Uh, what you love is what dismays you when it's taken away or when you don't have enough of it. So Israel loved size. Like I said, she, was, she demanded an impressive warrior king in First in Samuel 8, as we, as we preached on a couple of weeks back, uh, in her battles to fight her battles for her. And what she got was Saul. He was an impressive king. He pleased the eyes. She trusted in Saul and Saul failed her and Saul is failing her right here in verse 25. He's sitting here failing her. So she's filled with fear. It's what happens when our false lovers fail us, guys. And there's only one true lover and it's not a bank account and it's not a house and it's not a degree and it's not another person. Um, What Keller would say, instead of what are your false lovers, what is your monster? What is your giant, okay? Is it money? When you have little or none, fear will grip you and control you then. You've placed your trust in money. Eventually, it is going to fail you. Beauty, what about when you gain weight, get old, wrinkly, nasty, okay? You're gonna, your beauty, your outward beauty is gonna fail you. What then, okay? What if that's your monster, your giant? Man's esteem, that's one I really struggle with. What about when you're ignored, rejected, passed over? It'll happen. Resume, school, companies built, it's never, it's never enough. Someone more impressive is always gonna come along. Besides, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Um, money, beauty, social esteem, education, strength, power, pleasure, some of, our, some of our societal idols, comfort, security, safety, control, these things we live and die for, it's never going to be enough to satisfy, and it's never going to secure you, and eventually it's going to run out. It can't, besides, it can't answer the, ult- answer the ultimate questions that we have and need answers to. Um, And besides that, friendship with the world, with the world system, with what we see and can measure, friendship with the world, trust in the world, is enmity with God. It sets us up to be enemies with God. It's one or the other. It's one or the other, okay? That's one of the things this narrative teaches us. So let's learn from David. David is a man who, he's a young boy, he's a young man who fears God and loves God, and this greater love and fear pushes out all the lesser fears that are certainly before him and pulsating. All around him And it makes him humble and bold as a lion. So let's take a look at him. David, point two. Um, he's called small again in verse 14. We talked about that um, a couple sermons ago, the runt, the small one, the youngest, um, Hakaton. He's running back and forth. He's still an errand boy. he's doing errands now. His three biggest brothers are on the front lines, poised to fight in the army, but he's just a runner. He's a mail carrier. And he's stuck with the sheep still. He's still taking care of the sheep. And he's playing a harp. He's a musician. He's playing a harp for Saul, meanwhile. And, uh, you know, his brothers, he's been anointed to be the next king of Israel in front of his brothers, surprise of everybody. But it looks like, if we're just looking with our eyes, what does the situation look like? It looks like his brothers are the ones that are about to be king. They have the opportunity to fight and to win and to get all these prizes that Saul's offering. Not David. David's left behind. If he's focused on just what he sees and not on God's word to him in front of his brothers, which is that you will be king, you're my choice, he's, he's dead in the water. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. He would have despaired. And you know, in verses 28 and 29, you have Eliab, um, he just reams David out. I know you. What are you doing with those, that scrabble of sheep in the wilderness? Like, you've just come here to make trouble. He's jealous. He remembers uh, the anointing, and that's the anointing that he wanted for himself, but David got it instead. And so he's just jealous, and he's lashing out. And you can tell it's not the first time, because David says what? In verse 29, what have I done? What's the word? It's there in the Hebrew, now. So in other words, this isn't the first time he's been chewed out. He's just put aside, running cheese to the front lines and playing the harp, okay? Okay? but he's not focused on that and he's remembering God's word to him and trusting in it and really cares about God's name. So I wanna ask you, friend, um, what circumstance are you in? What do you see and feel versus what what does God say about you in Christ? Maybe it's that my husband doesn't love me or my wife doesn't love me, okay? Um, Or I need someone to love and I don't have someone to love. I'm I'm not lovable. I'm unlovely. I'm incapable of being loved. Um, But God's word in Christ to you is that you are greatly loved, not because of your performance, what a relief, but because of his performance, and he has set his love upon you in Christ and offers himself to you. So which are you going to trust? It's the question for all of us. (laughs) Um, And just an aside, God's anointing and call on David cost him. Like, he's getting reamed out and treated worse by his brothers now than he was probably previously um, and, and because they've seen God's word on his life and they've, they've been in front of his anointing as the next king of Israel. And so, um, and, and he, he's on the run for 10 years in the wilderness from Saul after this. And so God's word in our lives, God's call of us to be his own will often make our lives harder. So your best life now, like if that's your motivation for following God or for coming to God, that's, that's, a, that's a lie, that's a heresy, that's a false prophecy, Okay. But only God will satisfy. And only God is, he is the only true God, okay? And the one that our hearts are made for. But uh, we will suffer with God's call in our life. We will suffer for Christ. And our lives will often get harder, but they will be better, okay? So David, David there was a cost on David here, and we see that. Um, and if you notice, Robert Alter points this out. In verse 22, um, David takes off Saul's armor, but before that, there's a series of divestments, he says, in the narrative where he divests himself of his sheep, he, but notice he leaves them, he's faithful at his post, he leaves them with someone else to take care of him, to go to the battle line as he runs the cheeses and the bread to his brothers. He divests himself of that stuff that his dad gives him to go uh, talk with Saul and the other people, and finally he divests himself of Saul's armor, okay, before going to meet Goliath. Um, God often preps us for battle in life, for victory, by stripping us down and divesting us of the things that we might normally trust in. So if you're in the middle of something that feels like that, take heart. God is prepping you for battle. It's the way that he works. He's got a plan, because it gets us to the place where all we have is him, and where our eyes are fixed on him, and that is a grace. David's confidence, all we have to do is look at, let's say, Verse 37, verse 46, it's, in, it's not in his ability to kick butt and take names. It's not. He says, The Lord will deliver you to me. He's, he knows that God has been preparing him. God has been using all the little things that were rinkadink, his sheep herding. He's been using all that to prepare David. And he is using whatever in your life you feel is humdrum, boring, rinkadink. He has you there and he's using you and he's preparing you for things that you don't even understand are coming, okay? Be faithful at your post. And David understands that um, and it comes to play in a big way here, okay? Um, But he also doesn't put his, uh, his faith in his prowess. He puts his faith in God's faithfulness and God's power. God will deliver you. Verses 36, verse 37, Verse 46. One of my favorite lines, I had it posted in my little cubicle, my nerd cubicle in Edinburgh when I was working on my dissertation. Um, It says that David, uh, he ran to the battle line to meet Goliath. This kind of uh, trust in God, remembering his faithfulness, keeping our eyes on his word, knowing his word, spending time in it day and night, meditating on it, letting that fix our imaginations in our world rather than what we see, will produce a humility and a courage in you such that you will run to meet whatever it is that people run from. David runs to the battle line to meet Goliath. I love that. Just like Jesus, he sets his face like flint toward what? Toward Jerusalem, the place where all prophets go to die, because he knows that's where I'm going, that boldness, that trust in God. Don't trust your eyes. Here's the point. Don't trust your eyes. Trust rather in God's, in God's promises. Eugene Peterson, again, he says, Reality is made mostly up of what we can't see. And, you know, this, is, this, this episode is a lot like the whole book of Esther, where the book of Esther, you know, God's not mentioned once, but he's superintending and he's moving and he's choreographing and he's working salvation for his people the whole time through minutia and in big ways too. And that's what's happening here. God is in the background in a lot of ways. And that's what a large part of our lives are or certainly feel like is that God, he feels absent perhaps, but he's working. He's with us. Through Christ, by His Holy Spirit, and He's working; He's choreographing. Um, and the whole, the whole um, narrative is crystallized in David's awesome speech that that Nathaniel read so well. It's all crystallized in his speech. So verses 45 through 47. I'm not going to read it, but what a wonderful! You've defied God, and God to God is the victory, and I will, I will, um, I will defeat you in the name of the, the Living God. So. This, this passage shows us the victory of God. Uh, if you look at verse 49, what happens to Goliath after David uh, releases the, the stone? It says what, that his face, Goliath's face fell to the ground. This same phrase occurs a few chapters before in this same book. There's an episode where the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence, as it were, is. They steal it and they think they've beaten God and they put it, in front of their God and their temple, and their God is named Dagon. And the Philistines come in in the morning, and what's happened to Dagon? His, he's face down with his head severed and his hands severed uh, off of the statue. He's worshiping the living God. God achieved victory through, for his unfaithful people, the Israelites, through no help of their own. And the point is, no God stands a chance before the one true God. And, and this is exactly the same phrase that we see in the Hebrew um, here, is that Goliath, the God of the Philistines, the thing that we contend to put our trust in, he falls face down. And what, what happens? His head is severed. Same exact thing. His head is severed from his body. God is God alone. And, and if we put our trust in anything else, we are on the wrong side, and it will fail us. Okay? So, and he works his victory through the smallest of means, through the most unlikely means. So finally, let's look at Jesus. This is, of course, the high point. This is where it gets super satisfying. Um, this whole narrative is to point us toward the greater than David, who came from David, okay? Uh, Jesus. So Goliath, we looked at David, and now let's finish with Jesus. Um, the, the author of, of 1 Samuel, he jukes us big time in this narrative, um, in a lot of ways, okay? He sets us up to expect victory from Goliath, our eyes are on him, and then in comes this little shepherd guy, okay? But in, even in some small ways, like David has a staff in a sling, and Robert Alter points out that uh, his staff probably acts as, I mean, he's a shepherd, so he's got a staff, but it could well have been calculated as camouflage um, because it hides his sling, because even Goliath mentions who are you that you come at me with sticks, you know? Am I a dog? You're going to whip me with that stick? And so he's got his eyes focused on this. But meanwhile, David's got five stones. And he's, I mean, it's been shown, uh, it's been proven in, I mean, it's been recorded in history outside the Bible and within the Bible, the Benjamite tribe. They could hit, uh, they could hit things with deadly accuracy from hundreds of feet away, like uh, within a hair's breadth. They could just nail the bullseye with these stones. And so David's got this deadly weapon, but it's hidden, it's camouflaged, it's a, it's a diversion. And that's really a metaphor for the larger theme, that uh, what we're, the narrator, narrator is, he's juking us. So, so all of Israel, and certainly the Philistines, have got their eyes on Goliath, and meanwhile in comes the killer. And we even, perhaps as readers, are, have, have our eyes on Goliath, but in comes, in comes David. Um, and that's all the better because the victory of God is all the more amazing, okay, when it comes from this small, this small shepherd. We're all surprised together, we with the Philistines and the Israelites. And guys, this is a perfect picture. This is a wonderful picture of the cross. It's a wonderful picture of the cross where even the Jews who knew the Old Testament were expecting their Messiah, the promised one from the Bible, to be a conquering king, a king who in an ostentatious, obvious way delivered them from the Roman yoke or for whatever geopolitical yoke was over them. And we want deliverance in the same way, don't we? From our outward oppressors. You know, I have too little money in the bank account or, or not enough friends, or I don't have a spouse or my spouse want, I need my spouse to love, whatever it is. But God comes in and he gives us this weak, poor, ostensibly weak, poor, uh, overlooked conqueror, right? Um, who... Even in his life and not just in his death, he jukes us, right? So what does Isaiah 52, three say? It says, for a prophecy about Jesus 700 years before he came, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, our eyes just pass right over him, just like like David. And we in our wickedness and evil, we play right into God's plan of salvation in Christ. And that he went to the cross and everyone said, you are defeated, God. You are defeated. They literally said to him, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and prove it. And if he had, we would all be lost without hope of salvation. Because what he was doing on that cross in dying was achieving our victory. Dying in our place, taking what we deserved. And in his life of obedience, also giving us that obedience as we trust in him, that righteousness whereby he obeyed the Father from the heart is conferred to us. His, not only his death, his penalty for our sin, but also his life. And um, that's something I want to just belabor for a few seconds, because I feel like it's not, I don't talk about it enough, and it's not talked about enough with regard to what Christ effected or accomplished for us in our salvation. We talk about the cross a lot, and well we should, but our salvation was not just accomplished on the cross. It was finished on the cross. Yes, it was. Jesus said that, it is finished. But his entire life, our salvation hung in the balance from birth to death on every thought Jesus had and on everything that Jesus did. He was always obeying his father from the heart out of love and trust, even when his eyes told him something different. I don't want to go to this cross, God, but not my will, but yours be done. If there's no other way and if it pleases you, do it. If Jesus had ever had a sinful thought, no, my way this time, or done something simple in his life, or broken God's law, we would be lost. His life of obedience and his heart for the Father counts for us and is transferred to us as well as his atoning death. So don't try to gin up. Don't think that your salvation is just... I'm justified, I'm made right with God, and now, though, I have to gin up obedience. That is not what Christ did. Christ gives us not only our justification, our status before God as righteous, as we look to him who did it for us, but also our sanctification. That journey, that slow outworking throughout our lives of actually being made like Jesus and obeying the Father. That's not something we do. That's already been purchased for you in Christ, so just abide in him. Just rest in him. Look to him, consider Christ, meditate on him, talk about him, let, as Anna said, everything you do, consider it as worship. He's in there, he's in the gritty, he's in the details, everything. Let it be an offering to God because of what Christ has already done and because what his spirit, his spirit is in you. And how did the Israelites win, guys, to go back to David and Goliath? How did they win that victory? They won the victory by doing nothing. They won, because it was a representative battle, they won the victory by doing less than nothing, by being filled with fear, dismay, and disobedience, by looking at Goliath instead of remembering God's faithfulness and his word. And they still won. And it's the same but more with Christ. We, when we abandoned him, when he was arrested, we with the disciples, right? When we watched from afar as he was crucified, helping not at all. When we worse helped nail his hands into the cross because he died for our sin, he was accomplishing our salvation. He was accomplishing our victory as we slapped him and spit on him and rebuked him. He was working the victory of God in the most camouflaged, amazing reversal. So, a, a, a few minutes of application and then we'll close, okay? Um, we need to learn this lesson, yes, yes, and as we consider Christ, that's how it happens. Lord, give us faith to believe, not just one, one and done, but you have, it, it's, it's an immediate, it's a transaction that happens once for all. When I trust in Christ, I am made righteous, given his alien, his outside righteousness, considered as Christ by God when God looks at me when I apprehend Christ by faith, when I look to him and say, you died for me in my place, you live for me in my place. It's a transaction that happens. But it also, it's a continual trusting in God and looking to God instead of our monsters as we walk throughout life and thereby Christ, his life in us, produces fruit and makes us more like him. And he will finish that work, okay? But also, we don't just need to learn the lesson, we need a reprogramming. Because of that deep poison, that deep crookedness, that deep sickness, that deep tendency to look to what my eyes see to take the fruit and to eat it. To look at the monster and to quail with fear. And that reprogramming is also an inheritance of our salvation, given to us freely through Christ's work. It's called the Holy Spirit. And I sure do want to talk and think and act a lot more consciously as a body, moving forward on the power of the forgotten member of the Trinity, the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God through the work of Christ, given to us, Christ in you, working out, giving you real power, giving you Christ's heart for the Father. Lord, give me, Jack Deere loves to pray this prayer. He's one of my favorite teachers. Lord, give me, help me love, give me your love for Jesus, Father. Jesus, give me your love for the Father. Put your love inside of me, reprogram me, walking, keeping in step with the Spirit rather than with our flesh and looking to what, entices. So we need a reprogramming, and in Christ, we get it. And that works itself out slowly, doesn't it? But take heart. And God God still works. I think we can, speaking of the camouflage and the juke that happens with David, it happened with Jesus on the cross with his life and death. We kind of tend to think, um, and this is a Jack Deere point too, that God stopped working that way once Jesus died on the cross, or that he stopped working that way once the canon of scripture was closed. That's the way God is, he, he always surprises us, he always works in ways we don't expect. He loves to work his victory through weakness. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Jack Deere, he says, he used to read this verse like this to himself. That's right, God, Or he would react to the verse this way. Their ways aren't our ways, are they? Humorous but funny, I mean humorous but convicting to me because, no, God's talking to you too, Jack. God's talking to me too. My ways are so much higher than yours, Taylor, Tom, Robin, Austin. I'm going to continue to do things like I did them with David, like I did them on the cross. This is God's way. This is God's way. Um, Tertullians, and I want to just t- flesh out for the next last couple of minutes a couple of those ways. And then close. Tertullian's hard-earned maxim is still true. He said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, we, we think still that, hey, the church will grow if only we have enough money, resources, power, favor, whatever. Or, the, or God will go forth in power if the government gets its thing together, if we start to have a Christian government. No, like the more in history, the more the church has gone forth in power, the more, rather, let me split let me that. The more that it has suffered and been persecuted, the more it has gone forth in power. That's because everything now works according to the economy of the cross. When God's people are persecuted, his power goes forth until Christ returns and conquers for good, finishes the work he started. Um, our, our Israel trip leader said, it's like a fist on water. You try to smash it, and what does the church do? It spreads, and that's what, our li- that's what happens in our lives. God's, one of his main mechanisms for victory in your life, friend, it's through suffering, it's through loss, it's through losing, he's working his image in you and he's doing things that you have no idea about. Be encouraged, be encouraged. A few quick examples, Joe Novenson is a preacher, he has five services on a Sunday at Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, huge church, um, but godly man, more importantly, humble, full of the spirit of the living God, preaches the word with fire, very gentle, unassuming. How did he get that way? He got that way in part because two weeks into his marriage, at the end of his honeymoon, he had just driven from the East Coast to the West Coast. They'd settled in California. He had a year working as a youth pastor. He had just finished seminary. Day one on the job, not in seminary, but he was working like for the summer before, before, uh, sorry, before his youth pastorship in a metal factory. Day one on the job, his hand, he's at a metal sheet rolling station, and his hand gets caught in the sheet roller, and he puts the other hand in to try to extract his hand and both get caught, rolled through. Your hand rolled through a metal sheet roller, flat as a sheet. He, he, go, he gets rushed into the hospital, 17 surgeons working on him, took like a day of surgery, um, reconstructing. He had to sleep, he had to do this body cast. His hands were out like this for a year, first year of his marriage. For better or for worse, his wife, she tucks him in every night with pillows on both sides of his arms so they stay up. He sleeps like this, and she, le- she leans to the pillows and kisses him. Where did his humility come from? Where did the victory of God and that kind of power to preach the gospel and love people come from? Sheet rollers. Second week of marriage. Would he have expected that? No. No. Um, our friends, a moral example, so that's a physical example, a moral example. Our friends, they had it all in the world's eyes. Um, They were successful. They had all the glitz and and the money and everything, but they were empty. It was all varnish and and pretty miserable, at least heading that way. Um, And then one of them committed adultery. Went on for two years. And the husband stuck it out, stayed faithful. This is for the family. This is for her. This is for God. His faith has grown by leaps and bounds. She has come through and is on fire for the Lord, new person, Their marriage is better than ever. Their family is in a healthier place, like way healthier than it was before, you see, before the infidelity. How does God do this? It's the way he works. It's the way he works. Um, A natural example, okay, a natural example, an acorn. I have three acorns sitting uh, from Israel. I probably shouldn't have brought them back. I didn't realize it was illegal at the time. <laughs> I didn't answer yes to the whole agriculture question when I went to going through the airport because I forgot. And then later I was like, oh, I had three acorns. But they had these huge acorns in Israel and a few of us picked some up and uh, I brought them back and they're on my bedside table and I want to plant each one of them and have the kids plant each one. But either way, they're sitting on my bedside table right now. They're not yet planted. They're just acorns. And if I keep them there, what are they going to do? They're just going to stay there as acorns, No growth, no power, but an acorn, a single acorn has the power to reforest the entire planet. Because what? Because when it grows, it has thousands of acorns, and when a few of those grow and then more and the exponential numbers, literally one acorn has the potential to reforest the planet, but how does that potential release? Not by sitting on my bedside, staying closed, by dying in the ground by dying in the ground. It's not the way that we tend to see things because of Eden, but it's the way things work and it's the way God works. Um, Friend, what is God calling you to die to? His power in and through you will probably be through your defeats, not through your victory, perhaps through your suffering. And you know, and I close with this, it doesn't have to be suffering. Do you know that the greatest form of defeat, in a sense, and the most regular, is repentance? And what, what brings us to the place of repentance? God, I was wrong. You are right. You've provided a way for me to say that and to live into that by trusting in Jesus, your son, who lived the life that I should have lived, but haven't, and died the death that I deserve on the cross. Um, meditating on the gospel, considering Christ the greater than David, daily, hourly, in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, in our conversation, in our regular things that we're going through, at our desk, as we're changing the diaper, as we're eating, considering Christ, thinking on him and what he's done for us. The fact that while we were still unlovely and his enemies, he laid his life down for us. That's how worthy you have been made. That's how loved you are. And that's how lovely you will become, as lovely as Christ is. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Thinking on this, Will on this man who stood between us and God and laid his life down for us will, will change us uh, and will reroute the way that we think. So let me, let me pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the acorn that he is and he uh, went down into the earth. He died and was buried and rose proving his victory, not just for him, no, no, but for us giving us what we surely do not deserve and taking your white hot wrath against our injustice and sin and evil onto himself. So we, we bless you in Jesus' name, that man, that man between who was a shield to us, who came between you and us and stood in our place. We love you. Please continue to work in us through the power of your spirit by faith in Christ. Amen.